just going to encourage you with a verse from Psalm chapter 5. Psalm 5, verse 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. So, you know, if you're someone who's taken refuge in the Lord uh, this morning, uh, God's word calls us to, to exult, to praise him. Uh, and just this idea that we can do, we should do that forever. Uh, let them ever sing for joy. Um, we're going to sing this, this next song together. Uh, just felt appropriate for what we've been thinking about with David. And, you know, David was someone who was very patient with God's promise. God had laid out this truth that you're going to be the king. And yet David was waiting patiently for God to fulfill things in his timing. And uh, this is a song that kind of speaks to that uh, idea. Walking around these walls I thought by now they'd fall But you have never failed me Waiting for change to come Knowing the battle's won For you have never failed me yet Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never failed me yet. Father, we thank you that you have never failed us and that you promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to place our trust fully in you and what you have done for us. Um, help us to set our eyes on you as we, uh, as we look forward to the rest of this morning, the time in your word. Uh, we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're, you're part of the kids uh, group, um, you can be dismissed second through fifth grade Sunday school. Just a couple of announcements. Um, one is that Awana and the, and the whole school year is coming up quickly, so I know we still have need for some helpers. Um, if you're interested in that, please, please talk to Mary Klein. Um, hopefully there's an email in the bulletin for that. Uh, if you're interested in helping with Awana, I think we still need a leader for the Cubbies program. Now, uh, we have a special announcement about our College Companions Ministry. So Heather Durr, uh, come on up. Heather Durr uh, last year uh, helped us get this ministry off the ground, and she's going to tell you about uh, exciting ways to get involved this year. Okay. Um, so, yes, as Alan just mentioned, our college care ministry is going to get underway again starting this month. And last year was the first year that we did this. Um, this year we are doubling in size. We had four students in college from Creekside last year, and we had four high school graduates this spring. So we will have eight students um, in this this year. So can we start by just having any of our um, Creekside college students, if you could come up here real quick and just... Line up along the front, just so we can introduce you to everybody. I know that we will be missing some this morning, but you guys can go ahead just stay in front of the stairs here. All right, so we've got half. That's all right. All right, so what I'm going to ask you guys to do is if you could just introduce yourself to everybody, um, tell us your name, um, what year in school you are, where are you going to school, and then either like what your major is or what your career aspirations are. My name is Rose Vanderlinden. I'm going to Iowa State University. I'll be a senior, and I'm doing elementary education. My name is Colin Short. Um, I'm in industrial design at Iowa State. I will be a junior this year, and I'm hoping to go into product design when I graduate. My name is Emma Durr. Um, I'll be a freshman at Dort this fall, um, and I'm majoring in social work. 
Uh, my name is Tim. I'm also a student at Dort University. I will be ma I'm majoring in mechanical engineering, and hopefully, Lord willing, I want to do grad school in aerospace engineering. All right, so um, again, that was just half of them. The students that we have this year, we have the four freshmen, Emma, Annalise, Cademan, and Britt. Those are our new students. And then Cora, Rose, Colin, and Timothy are our returning students. So since we've got twice as many students in the program this year, we need twice as many volunteers to help adopt our college students. All right, why did we get this program going? Why did we start doing this? Well, because statistics show that anywhere from 65 to 75% of young men and women who were raised in the church and enter college as professing Christians will walk away from their faith by the time they're done with college. And there are many reasons for this, but often the two primary reasons have to do with Number one, their faith just isn't strong enough um, to withstand the attacks from non-believing roommates, liberal professors, and a wide variety of activities and social pressures. Um, faith in college is under siege. No matter where they go, whether it's a public university or a private university, a Christian university, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. Um, the second reason that a lot of students walk away from their faith is because when they went to church, before they went to college, it was often a family activity, right? It was something that they just did because it was the family thing. It was their parents' church, and they didn't make connections in the faith, or they didn't make connections within the church, the relationships there. So we wanted to really find a way to help connect our college students with people who are here in the church so that this doesn't just feel like their, their parents' church anymore. That they're making these connections with you guys, so it's their church just as much as it is their parents' church. So... Those two factors really end up creating a spiritual graveyard for many students, and um, we have the opportunity to challenge those statistics. All right. um, this, the college care ministry here is focused on undergraduate students who, are, who were actively attending church here before they left for college. And again, the goal of this ministry is to connect with and encourage and pray for these students. So what we're looking for is individuals, couples, or whole families to adopt a, one of our college students for just one month out of the whole school year. Okay, so during that one month, um, I'll send you a reminder when it's your month, and during that month, um, we'll just ask that you pray for that student and that you just send them a note of encouragement. So it's pretty simple. Now, last year, some, some people wanted to go above and beyond, and they sent some gift cards for, like, gas or groceries. Some of them sent small care packages, and I will tell you, our students loved that. So they, they really loved just getting some of those surprises in the mail. But even just a, a small note of encouragement just really went a long way. Um, and then last year, we also had some people ask if they could adopt more than one student for the school year. Absolutely. So since we've got eight students, if you'd like to adopt more than one student for the school year, please do. Um, so again, last year's students, they, they've told me how much they really um, enjoy, enjoyed and appreciated this ministry. Um, one of the favorite comments that I got from a student was they said, it felt like getting a little hug from home each month. So you guys, it really makes a difference for these students. Um, so if you join with us, not only will you be supporting our college students with prayer and encouragement, you'll also be helping to form those individual relationships with them. And again, so they'll know that Creekside is their church, not just their parents' church. Um, so in the atrium after church, we will have signups. They will look like, I'll show you. They will look like this. So look for these, and they will have the names of each student. They'll have the months. If you just print clearly um, your name and your email address on there, then what I will do is um, I will send you out more information, and when it's your month, I will send an email reminder to you that month letting you know um, some information about the student that you've adopted, um, some things that you can be praying about for them, because they're all filling out surveys for me to tell you uh, the things that they could use prayer for this year and just some information like that. So if you've got any questions, feel free to ask me. Otherwise, look for me out there and look for the signups, and we hope you'll get connected with these college students. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. That's, uh, that's a great ministry. Um, excited and what a think about those days many years ago when I went off to college and what kind of an encouragement that would have been uh, to me as a young college student uh, away from home and looking for spiritual encouragement so I appreciate you heading that up Heather I invite you to pray with me if you would father um, I thank you that your faithfulness is constant.
and that your goodness um, sustains us. I pray and ask now, Father, that as we worship you through the study of your word, that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts in a way that you know we need to hear, and that you would work to bring about a transformation in our lives that's not just a duty, but that is driven by a deepening devotion to you as our great God and King. I ask now that you would work in the, in the hearts and lives of uh, believers and unbelievers that gather in many different churches around the Des Moines area, and I ask that you would work to send forth the Word of God with boldness and clarity that it might bring about change and transformation for your glory and for the gain of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have a motion light on our back door. And the intent of the motion light is that uh, it, it shines a bright light into the physical darkness. In the same way, uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to shine the light of Christ's righteousness into a spiritually dark world. That's what we're called to do. And the divine light of uh, God's righteousness that comes through believers living as they should reflects his righteousness it reveals the darkness that's around us and it is intended to bring about repentance repentance that uh, uh, works in the lives of sinners to bring them to redemption but in believers to bring us to right living We'll welcome one of the newest members of our church. <laughs> Praise God. And so the, the, the divine light manifests through believers is intended to pierce the darkness, not just like some metaphor, but intended to bring about change, to bring about change in our hearts and in the hearts of those who don't know Christ. And this morning we look at a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 24 where David's righteous conduct further distinguishes him from the wickedness of Saul. And intended, yes, chapters 24 through 26 are, are this, this portrait of David's patiently waiting for God to bring about what he has promised to usher him into the throne, but also care, uh, describe his tragic plight of being pursued by, by Saul. But so David's refusal, in this passage of chapter 24, David's refusal to capitalize on a divine appointment to terminate his adversary uh, provides us with a glimpse of what divine light penetrating the dark world looks like. And so if you have your Bibles or if you want to look at the screen or if you want to reach down underneath the seat in front of you and find a Bible, I'll be reading the text from 1 Samuel chapter 24 in the New American Standard. And we're going to see that the divine light of righteousness shines through and to God's chosen servant in three forms that intend, I think, are to both instruct us and also to inspire us in bringing the light into the darkness. 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Now we went from the rock of escape to the rock of wild goats. Okay, Verse 3. And he came to the shepherds on their way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave, and men, the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly, and it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to the Lord, the Lord's anointed, and stretch out to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men 
with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait to take, for, uh, to, for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? There, The Lord therefore be judge, decide, judge and decide between you and me. May he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now it came about when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you, are, you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Three, three forms that uh, this shining the light in the darkness takes in the life of God's chosen servant. First of all, God's chosen servant refuses disobedience. There's two components in uh, the refusal to compromise that shine divine light. First of all, we refuse to compromise on principle. So last week, uh, Pastor Jesse uh, shared with us chapter 23. And just at the end of the chapter, Saul was about ready to pounce on David and his men. But sovereignly, God and his divine providence interceded and sent Philistines to raid the Israelites. And then Saul and his men left and they went back to take care of the Philistines. Well, after taking care of the Philistines, Saul went home, and when Saul got home, he was informed that David was in En Gedi. Okay, and so he picked out 3,000 of his elite troops and continued his manhunt for David. Now, En Gedi is a, a, an oasis, okay? And it's located on the west edge of the, of the Dead Sea. And there are lots of rocky cliffs. And there are these sheepfolds that are outside of the caves that are numerous in that area. And so we read in the text, and as I, I read in the text, that Saul was, you know, just like every other human being, nature called. And so he went into a cave to relieve himself. Just so happens that that was the same cave not accidentally, but providentially, where David and his men were hiding in the inner recesses. You know, as I read this text, I thought, you know, Saul seems to have this interaction and talking, or David has this interaction and talks with his men. And I'm going, well, 
how can he talk inside a cave and Saul not hear him having this conversation? Well, he was in the inner recesses, and so he kind of came out of the inner recesses and cut off Saul's robe, and then he went back and talked to his men, and so that seems to explain it to me. But we have here that David's men, in verse 4, they're like, this is it, man. This is what you've been waiting for. He's right here. This is God's deliverance. Now, I'm thinking uh, a lot of David's men probably weren't real spiritual dudes, but uh, they got it, and they said, this is the, uh, this is the hand. He's, he's given you into your hands. If you have your Bible sometime, you could go through there, and you could circle every time the word hand or in the hand is mentioned. And so it's like three, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times, okay? It's in verses four, in verse six, two times in verse 10, in verses 12, in verse 13, verse 15, verse 18, and verse 20. In the hand. So what does it mean? Well, it means that if something is in your hand, you have control of it. And so whenever someone or something was in your hand, it's the holder has control over what they're holding. A few weeks ago, we were over at my son's and my, my grandson, who had just turned four, uh, we were having a water, water fight, okay? And so he has these, uh, these water squirters that you stick in a bucket and you just pull this thing out and then you go around and you just unload it. Well, we were running around and uh, I had unloaded my weapon, so to speak, and my grandson was right in front of me. And he, you know, big grin on his face because he had me in his hand. Right? And he unloaded on me. He unloaded on me. Okay? So in the hand, that's what it means to have it in the hand. Now, why would God sovereignly bring David into contact with his chief rival, actually, David's not a rival of Saul. Saul sees David as his rival. But why put him in that place? I, I think it was a test. It was a huge, divinely ordained test. And the test is, would David satisfy the flesh? You see, it says in verse 4, you look at verse 4. It says that the men of David said, he's brought you into your hand that you can do with him as you please. And see, isn't that the test for all of us? We do as we please, or do we do as God pleases, as what God wants? Seems good to you? Would he terminate Saul and take the throne, or would he submit to the Father and the Father's plan? So David cuts off Saul's robe, you know, and it's a symbolic act of defiance. Like, I gotcha, you know. But then he immediately feels guilty in his conscience. What's going on? Well, he understood that his act of aggression against the Lord's anointed was actually an aggression against God. He was usurping his authority and actually spurning the Almighty. And so he felt guilty for doing that, and he went back into the inner recesses, and he says to his men, far be it from me that, that, that I would do this thing and raise up my hand, in fact, and take Saul's life against the Lord's anointed. No, he wouldn't do that. He's not going to do that. David, in this section, I mean, even though, look, David's been anointed. Saul's, told, Saul's been told that the kingdom is being taken from you. And David is anointed. I don't think Saul knew that he had been anointed yet, but it doesn't matter. David had a chance to take out the competition and the throne would be his. But here's what we see. David rejected the corrupt shortcut to the throne. He could commit murder, which is what it was, right? Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not commit murder. He could do that. And it seems as though that was the temptation, but it, wasn't a, it was a test. Would he follow his will or would he follow God's will? Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. If you bow down and worship me, Satan says, then guess what? I'll let you rule over all these kingdoms. The Lord's anointed, David, rejected 
a corrupt means to the throne. The Lord's anointed Jesus rejected a corrupt means to the throne. And in doing so, they provide us with a principle of life. A principle that says there's no circumstance in life that justifies sacrificing obedience to God or His Word in order to get my way or further His kingdom. There's no circumstance in life that justifies me compromising God's Word in order to get my way or to do what I think is His will. You see, circumstances orchestrated by God even circumstances orchestrated by God don't sanction sin. God was not giving him permission to murder Saul by giving him over into his hand. No, not at all. You see, we cannot accomplish God's will by violating God's word. <laughs> because that's against his will. We cannot accomplish God's will by violating his word. Now, Here's the deal. Um, where are we tempted to do that? Well, a lot of places. But a couple of places where it's especially tempting, issues of romance and finance. Okay? So in the issues of romance and finance are areas where, where those of us who, who say we're followers of Jesus are, are most tempted to sacrifice obedience on the altar of expedience. For example, I mean, married, married people, it's like there's this temptation. You say, and when I say these things, I, I've heard, these are not just like, I've heard some of these arguments, okay? Well, married people are, are, are tempted to engage in an affair or to uh, divorce their spouse because they say, well, the, the Lord wants me to be happy. Or that they, they say, the Lord wants me to be with someone who truly understands, wants me to be with my soulmate. Okay? Singles. They're tempted to do a lot of things that are contrary to God's Word. Living together, go, go along with the crowd and get involved with things that they shouldn't. Go to places to find a, a spouse where they know that they shouldn't go. Because, you know, well, you know, if, if, if it's more economical, you know, if we're, if we're together. I've heard this. Or, you know what, it, it'll help us know if we're really compatible. You know, and it's not just in romance and finance. In finance, think of this. Oh, there's an income tax refund coming, right? No, it's already passed. Okay. But we wait for that tax refund, and then when we get the tax refund, we go, oh. This is a blessing from the Lord. And obviously, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of variableness or turning. And so now I can buy the new flat screen TV. Even though I have outstanding bills to numerous creditors that I should be paying. In the church of Jesus Christ, Leaders that are disrespected, they're not, that does not justify them publicly humiliating the people who have disrespected them or using them in a sermon illustration and, uh, you know, just not mentioning their name uh, for the purpose of, of, of confidentiality. No, the, the Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome, but to be gentle and kind to all. Second Timothy chapter 2. We aren't to gloat over our enemies' misfortunes or spread rumors to ruin a hostile co-worker or a belligerent, obnoxious neighbor or another church member or a competitor's reputation. We're not supposed to go that way. Padding our timesheet, extending our breaks, or relying on chat GPT to do our work is not God's plan for, for our life. Godly responses uh, are not godly responses. So no matter how poorly we've been treated, it's not a, a green light to disobey God. 
You know, it's just like, okay, I feel justified in my sin. No. Uh, I want you to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 20, 17 and 20. Never pay back evil for, to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is what God calls God's people to do. It's what God's chosen servant, David, did. It's what God's chosen servant, Jesus, did. It's what their example calls us to do. We are to mimic what we have been modeled by the Lord's anointed. See, God's people are called to interpret our circumstances in light of God's word, not God's word in light of our circumstances. The word of God determines what we do regardless of our circumstances, not when we take the circumstance and then decide what we think God's word wants us to do. Secondly, we refuse to compromise under pressure. In verse 7, it's interesting because the literally in the Hebrew... Uh, it says, verse 7 says, and David persuaded. It, that's what it says in the ESV. That's what it says in the NASB. But literally, it is he tore apart or he ripped into his men verbally. There was a heated verbal exchange in which David used all of his leadership collateral, spent it all to keep his men from taking out Saul. In the face of overwhelming pressure, David remained faithful to God's word. You see, God's call to obedience when is, is true, and it's especially true when we're pressured. I remember, and I, I may have told you the story, when I was a senior in high school, we had a, there was a, some friends of mine had to get together, and they were having this party, and, and a couple of my buddies called me aside and said, hey, Steve, you know, uh, and they had alcohol there, and then most of the people probably weren't, weren't eligible to drink. And they said, Steve, you, you, know, you, you know, you're going to college, college students, you're going to college, you know, you're going to look weird, you know, if you, if you don't, you know, just, if you don't drink. And I said, I guess I'm going to be weird then, uh, you know, because uh, I wasn't going to compromise. But there was pressure, tremendous pressure to, to go along with the crowd. You see, we're, we're told by the, by the masses that everybody cheats. Everybody's doing it. We're told nobody tells the truth all the time. Come on, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? We're told, and I can't, I, I tried to source this, but uh, I have it written down as the, the Hayduke rule, okay? This is what we're told. Do unto others before they do unto you. That's the world's way. Do unto others before they do unto you. Wrong. Matthew twenty two thirty nine 39 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Not do unto others before they do unto you. There's a second form in which this shining of the light takes. Secondly, God's chosen servant relies upon his Lord's justice. And again, throughout this text, and I, I, I was debating, there is this, as Alan brought about in that passage in, in Psalm 5. There is this patient waiting, but that's 24, 25, and 26. And what we're going to see next week is like, what, what David models here, he kind of blows it, and, and uh, he kind of does the opposite uh, when, it, when it comes to Nabal. And we'll have to tease that out and, and try to figure that out too. But here we have David and, and, and this reliance upon the Lord. It, it lights up the world and, and it and manifests in several ways. So the, it manifests itself several ways. First of all, the Lord's anointed acted courageously. Notice what it says in verse 8. Now afterward, this is after David had cut off the, the robe of Saul and had this little heated exchange with his buddies, said, no, you're not going to go after him. You're not going to take him out. David arose and went out of the cave. Dude, there's 3,000 elite troops, you know, paratroopers, uh, you know, the Green Berets, Navy SEALs, outside the cave. You are secretly hidden, and he doesn't know where you're at, and you expose yourself. Who does that? I mean, that's like a strategically stupid move. But David did. David did it. 
Uh, I may have told you this. I can't remember. My memory's bad because I'm old, but uh, I try to check this out. But uh, when I was in college, I was with, uh, went to Campus Crusade for Christ, went to a summer, uh, a spring break thing, and we were hearing this speaker, and the speaker said, you know, uh, my friend and I, we were out on the beach one time when we were in college, and we were sharing, sharing, going up to people and asking them if they would uh, engage in spiritual conversation. And we went up to these two uh, guys, and one of them was like this majorly buff guy, you know, big, tall, really chiseled guy. And, uh, and we said, would you like to talk about spiritual things with us? And the guy goes, no. Okay. But the guy says, so I looked at him in the eye and I said, you know what, why you don't want to talk about spiritual things? Because men's, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I'm thinking, dude, you're stupid. You know, you're going to get taken out. He, he was courageous in the face of opposition. And David models this courage for us to stand up against darkness. But he's not the only chosen servant of God who did it. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes upon into the temple and they're making a mockery of the temple by exchanging and marking up the price, in Matthew 23, Jesus ransacked the temple in a step of courage. I wonder, are we willing to follow their example? To stand up to a wicked professor, college students. To a wicked employer, a wicked neighbor or a family member, to defend our innocence. And this is the amazing thing. David didn't just go out there to defend his innocence. He went out there to expose Saul's wickedness. <laughs> it's like he's not just going out there, hey, I just want you to know I got your robe here and I'm, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean any harm. He went out there to say, no, I have your robe and you are a knucklehead because you're trying to take me out. That's what he did. The Lord's anointed didn't just act courageously, but he engaged humbly. As you go through the text, if you look at verse, the end of verse 8, David says this, My Lord, halfway through, my Lord the King. And then if you look at verse 10, he refers to him uh, as, Behold, your eyes have seen into my hand, but my eye had pity, and I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, my father. Verse 14, he says, you are a king of Israel. These are declarations of submission. Acknowledgement of Saul's superiority, his position. He's recognizing who he is. He acted humbly. David willingly submitted to someone who mistreated him horribly. You know, we've been with us in the story. I mean, how many times has Saul taken his spear and tried to off David? Many times. He's pursuing him, seeking his life, giving him a promise, giving Jonathan a promise. Oh, I don't mean any harm to David. Then turning around and throwing a spear at his own son. He's, he's spiritually destitute, and he's emotionally unstable. And David submitted to him. But our Lord Jesus also submitted to a whole human race that wanted to exterminate him. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on him the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even death on the cross. Wherefore also God has highly exalted him. And so we have this humility. Believers, we are to mimic the humility of the Lord's anointed modeled for us in David and in Jesus. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give himself a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility. Courage? Yeah. Humility, yeah, 
That's what we're supposed to do. I was in Chicago airport uh, trying to make my flight connection to get home to Des Moines. Went through the TSA check line, had my backpack in there. They went through the x-ray machine. They pulled my backpack out. The TSA agent basically pulled everything out of my backpack, looked at it, uh, no problem, and walked away. And I said something under my breath that was not an example of humility in the face of a violent authority. I was miffed. The least you could do is stuff it back in there. But God calls us to the kind of humility that David exhibits, that our Lord exhibits. And so when I see their example, it shows how woefully I fail. Thirdly, the Lord's anointed showed mercy. <laughs> Verses 9 and 10. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen. Now, interesting how many times he uses tangible evidence to drive home his point. Notice he says in verse 10, You have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David exercised uh, great mercy. You see, David's conduct contradicted what Saul's men were telling him. The evidence didn't match the, the accusation there, okay? And it claimed, it says, those men who claim David seeks to harm you, his actions contradicted their claim and it confirmed his innocence. Namely, he says, someone said to kill you, but I had, not get the word, pity on you. That's mercy. I didn't give you what you deserve. I showed you mercy. I showed you mercy. I had pity on you. David refused to take revenge on wicked Saul who deserved it. And David is a picture of Jesus. And Jesus refused to bring God's wrath on wicked men even though we deserve it. Instead, he provided a way, a way to be reconciled to God. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Reconcile. Now, not an, you could apply, it's applied in accounting too, but reconcile is to take a relationship of hostility and to turn it into one of peace and goodwill. Every human being is hostile to God. We are the enemy. We are the wicked soul. Deserving of judgment and wrath. But he reconciled us to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace. This is the issue. Reconciliation is peace. Peace how? Through the blood of his cross. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude. That's our attitude towards God. And you say, well, I'm not that mad at God. Oh, yeah? So how willing are you to submit to God? How willing are you to let God be in control of every aspect of your life? You're hostile to God. We're born hostile to God. But then he says, engage in evil deeds. That's us. Yet he has now reconciled you in his body of, in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless above reproach. Jesus made it possible. Through the blood of Christ, all God's enemies who believe, become his family. No longer enemies. We're seated at his table. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, you're here listening online, and you've never fully surrendered to Christ, you've never really admitted, yes, I'm one of those people caught up in evil deeds and hostile to God, whether it's passive indifference or, or active rebellion. I'm not surrendered to God. I can confess my sin and turn from it and accept and trust what Jesus did on the cross as the payment for my sin and then I will become his child. 
This is it. And we do this by grace through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through our trust, our acceptance of Jesus' death on our behalf. His resurrection is proof that he conquered sin and death, and I am a participant in that. We turn from sin and trust in Christ. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty, freedom at Calvary. Christ paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the message of good news. That's what Jesus, that's what David was pointing to, his, 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 his son Jesus, who came as the Lord's anointed King Messiah to provide for all humanity who would accept and trust it. All I can say is, don't reject it. Because you reject it to your own peril. And you know what? What we are to express what we have experienced. Luke Luke chapter 6, verse 36. We are to be merciful as our Heavenly Father has been merciful. I am to give to people what they don't deserve. Respect. Kindness, gentleness, patience. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, I go again. And now as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, we're supposed to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. Then the Lord's anointed spoke boldly, here comes David verse 11 now again I told you to look for the physical tangible evidence he says here now my father humility see indeed see comes out waving his souvenir you know he went into the cave brought a souvenir I got this here's my souvenir David or Saul see see He courageously spoke. It was tangible evidence of his innocence. And he he had passed on the opportunity to kill Saul. And his conclusion is, there's no evil in me. There's no rebellion in me. I I have not sinned against you. These are words that are in the text. Okay, so I'm not pointing you to every verse, but they're they're, they're in the text. I have not sinned against you. See, David is claiming, I'm impeccable and you're despicable because you wanted to take my life. Here I am. I cut off your robe. I proved that I didn't want to take you out. And you are wanting and chasing after me. David is impeccable. Saul is despicable. Well, Jesus, in John chapter 8, does something similar to what David did here. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and... uh, and in, in, in John chapter 8, verses 37, I think we have that. Do we have John 8, 37? That's fine. Turn there in your Bibles. You got one. John chapter 8, verse 37. Here's what Jesus was doing. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he says this. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me. Okay, thank David and Saul. <laughs> You're seeking to kill me, David says. Because my word has no place in you. Who's innocent? Who's impeccable? And who's despicable here? Jesus is impeccable. The Pharisees are despicable. Now, go down to verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. David is impeccable and calls out what's despicable. Jesus is impeccable, calls out what is despicable. We are to live impeccable and call out through our lives what is despicable. You look, if you would, at... uh, uh, the, the, the truth of what God calls us to do. We're supposed to do it. How are we supposed to do that? We boldly expose the wickedness, okay? And explain righteousness. We're, so I will condemn abortion. 
as the murder of an unborn child. I will condemn, we should condemn dishonesty. We should condemn human trafficking and gossip, sexual perversion, and gluttony. But here's the kicker. We, we also deal graciously, and we always hold up God's mercy to the participants and the innocent victims of these kinds of wickedness. So I say I understand that like 20% of, of, of women have had an abortion, and so I, my heart goes out, and I say, but there's forgiveness at the cross. It doesn't condone the sin, but there's a remedy of forgiveness with dishonesty, with sexual perversion, all of that stuff. It's wrong, but there is grace at the foot of the cross. Jesus provides it. Next, the Lord's anointed trusted God fully. I love the repetition in verses 12 through 15. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me. Now, go down to verse 15, the very first phrase. The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. The Lord is to judge. Now, look at verse 12, the end of the verse. But my hand shall not be against you. Verse 13, but my hand shall not be against you. What is he doing here? He's saying, I'm trusting myself to God to do the judging, and my hand will not be against you. I'm trusting God to do the judging, and my hand will not be against you. And all of that against the backdrop of Saul's wickedness which he highlights. This is what what he's highlighting here. David chose to trust God rather than to avenge himself. He chose to trust God rather than to avenge himself and trust God to see his plight. He trusted God to plead his cause. He trusted God to deliver him. That's what our Lord Jesus did. He trusted God to avenge him, to plead his cause, to see his plight, and to deliver him. First Peter, chapter, uh, uh, First Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 23. For what credit is there if you sin and are treated harshly? You endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently, uh, patiently endure it, it finds favor with God. For you have been called for this very purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That's the example of the Lord. That's what David did. That's what Jesus did. What he calls us to do is that we are to trust ourselves into the hand of him who judges righteously. That's not easy. Because we want to take our own vengeance, right? We want to get after him. David's restraint and his reliance upon the Lord's justice is only magnified in the light of Saul's decadence. In other words, Vengeance seems appropriate, right? I mean, all of the nasty things that that Saul had done to David, it seems like David would be justified in offing him. But his patience and his trust in God is magnified when it's brought into light in comparison to how, how he's been treated. And so it is with us, friends. David says, I'm a dead dog and a flea. I'm like, I I couldn't even do anything to you. Saul's decadence and David's insignificance only magnify the fact that David is being reliant and trusting in God in the midst of a horribly unjust circumstance. And this is Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, says the Lord. But leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And you go, yeah, but when you're at the TSA agent and they dump your stuff on the lawn, that, that goes out the window, right? You get fired from your job because you didn't get a shot. You get fired because you won't cheat for the boss. That's our fleshly reaction. I'm going I'm to get a piece, you know. I want a pound of flesh. We had this dear couple in the church we served in, one of the churches we served in, and uh, their son uh, was born healthy, but because of uh, a mishap in the delivery room, he ended up uh, uh, with some physical deformities. 
they didn't sue. And they probably could have won the case. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The lesson here is wait on God and pray for his justice. And that's not easy. <laughs> I think about Joseph Tsan, a communist police unjustly came to confiscate his pastoral library. And as they're coming into his home, violating his own privacy and packing up his library to take it and destroy it, he says to his wife, Honey, would you make some tea for our guests? I'm like, this is what God calls us to do. If we refuse to disobey, we rely upon God to accomplish his justice. And finally, God's chosen servant is reassured of the Lord's faithfulness. David's acting, David's acting, David's acting, and then all of a sudden, the last 16 through 22, it's Saul. And Saul's testimony about David. And here we have it. First of all, this reassurance that reveals God's light comes in three forms. There's a recognition that God's chosen servant's righteousness and his enemy's wickedness. In this section, the word Torah, well, translated good, is applied to David by Saul four times. He's good. He's good. He's good. See, David incarnated what it says there in verse 17. Saul says, you are more righteous than I, and I am wicked. I have treated you wickedly. Whoa, what a confession. You're the righteous, I'm the rotten one, okay? I'm the rotten one. David incarnated what his son commanded all of us to do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, it says, love your enemies and pray for your enemies. That's not stuff you do apart from the Spirit of God. That doesn't come natural. I mean, that's supernatural stuff. That's what God calls us to do. Verses 18 and 19. Uh, we have Saul testified to David's goodness. Saul says, you both demonstrated it, your goodness, and you declared your goodness. And I'm the rotten guy, okay? Basically, that's my translation of it. He, 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 and, and by David's actions, I mean, Saul says in verse 19, look, Dude, I understand. I mean, who goes in and has a chance to take out their enemy and doesn't do it? So that just tells me you don't consider me your enemy. That's Saul's confession. Three times, Pilate said of Jesus, I find no guilt in him. In John 19, I find no guilt in him. And I wonder if our excellent behavior, which that's what we're called to do, what David did, what Jesus did, we're called to do. Second Peter, uh, uh, or yeah, First Peter chapter two, verse twelve. Do we have that one? Yeah. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things, which now have been announced to you through the, uh, no. Second Peter, First Peter is Second Peter. Uh, my bad. Okay. First Peter two twelve, not First Peter one twelve. First Peter two twelve, and that was my bad because I gave them the wrong verse. Okay. So I'm going to go to 1 Peter 2.12. This is what it says. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good works as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are by our excellent behavior be criticized for our excellent behavior so that in the day of judgment the wicked people will glorify God because of what we've done in the same way. We see David, we see Jesus, honoring and glorifying God because of their excellent behavior. Secondly, the recognition of Yahweh's support of his chosen is an assurance. I mean, what? David is in pretty difficult circumstances, right? He's out there waving the robe in the face of Saul and he could be taken out at any time. But what does he do? What does God do? God assures him. You want to Saul admit? Saul admits, the Lord delivered you into my hand. The Lord delivered you. What is true of Jesus? John chapter 19, he says of Pilate, you could do nothing unless my father allowed you to do it. He knew of God's presence and power. David knew of God's presence and power. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the same presence and power. Matthew 28, 20. 
Well, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Romans chapter 8. There's nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. My return flight to the United States took me through Heathrow Airport in London. And there had been reports that the, the terrorists were, at that time, the terrorists were targeting flights from London to the United States. And I was like, I had, this is amazing, I had extended my stay uh, after we had done this, this ministry to visit some friends of mine in, the, in this country, and th- like three months ahead of time, the flight took me through Heathrow, Heathrow, and I'd never been through that airport going that place before, but I was on the way back, and there were terrorists that were targeting Americans on flights from London to the United States, and I was a little bit concerned. And then I woke up and I read in my time with the Lord, Isaiah 41.10. In Isaiah 41.10, the Lord he just goes before you. He'll be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Fear not. No, that's not it. Can't remember it right now. Blanking on it. And I, I. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. Whew. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will hold you with my righteous right arm. And he did, just as he always does, just as he does. And finally, the recognition of a chosen servant as king. This is amazing when Saul declares that Jesus is the king. Saul knows that somebody's going to be the king. Now he acknowledges that David is the king in fulfillment. And what an encouragement to David. David knew that he was going to be the king, and now his enemy is admitting that you're going to be the king. That's a relief in a very, very magical way, and Jesus revealed it to him. You see, I want to tell you this morning, if you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, It's possible to come face to face, as Saul did, with his own wickedness and never repent and never turn from your your sinfulness and trust in Christ. And that will lead you to an eternity apart from God and condemnation and hell. But through Jesus Christ, you can obtain mercy and forgiveness and find help in the time of need. You can be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life. That's the promise that God's Word gives to you, and I invite you to do that. If you know Jesus... Refuse disobedience. Rely on God's justice and rest in His presence and His power. Before we, before Jesus, we're all wicked, just like Saul was before David. But we take these emblems, these symbols of Christ's body broken and His blood shed, as a declaration that if we believe in Christ and his sacrifice for us, we are forgiven. And so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to take some time to search your heart and confess your sin and get right with God. And then you can come up to the table here in the back and take these elements as a celebration. But first of all, humble reflection, then happily rejoice in what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father, uh, what a challenging passage of scripture for all of us i pray now that you would search our hearts and those who don't know christ would be broken and brought to their knees and realization of their need for you not playing games and those of us who know you lord i pray that we would confess our sins and you're faithful and just to forgive our sins and give us grace and strength to press ahead we pray in jesus name Just take a moment, reflect and remember what Jesus has done. And then when you're ready, come partake in the bread and the cup. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wound.
His hands, His feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they laid Him down in Joseph's tomb, the entrance by heavy stone, Messiah still and all alone. Oh, praise the name of the the third